I'm going to preach about Job for the last time for a while, uh, and also about the gospel where Jesus, it's the last healing story in Mark, where he heals the blind man Bartimaeus, and maybe the overarching themes certainly for the book of Job continue to be, how do we think about God? And I'm not going to answer that question today, but to put out there at the group level some ways of thinking about this and why the book of Job is is so important. And then in the gospel, it's really about uh, sight and perception and how we understand that sort of thing. I thought I'd mention, though, it it popped into my head listening to it at 8 o'clock again this morning, the collect, the opening prayer that Mother McNeil read at the liturgy about increasing in us faith, hope, and charity. And it just affords me the opportunity to say something about that teaching moment. There are four cardinal virtues, justice, temperance, prudence, fortitude. And we get them from the Greeks. Virtue comes from a Greek word, arete, which means excellence and virtuous living in some ways has something to do with the pursuit of excellence and since there is no moral consensus any longer in this culture or in the West it might be important to understand something about the virtues once again as a starting place Christian people believe there are three additional virtues that have been added to those as the result of our baptism They are called the theological virtues, and in the old-fashioned language, they are infused at our baptism, and they are faith, hope, and love. And the early way in which we translated love was charity. We don't use charity a lot these days because it is a value-laden term that most people misconstrue, don't they? They think charity is a kind of Lady Bountiful uh, gesture where we're somehow helping people instead of understanding uh, the way in which we engage one another as human beings, you know. The dean of my seminary many years ago referred to the way people think, though, about love as love, (laughs) which is not what we talk about there either. Just so you know, when Paul uses the term love, agape, you've heard that word before, It is the love that is loved without regard to the loveliness of the object towards which the love is directed. So it's selfless. Not like the other types of love, which are also very important, but agape represents the type that Paul speaks of uh, most often and is often used in the New Testament. So I just thought I'd say that to you. Faith, hope, and love are important. Uh, People who have been influenced by the Protestant Reformation, including the Episcopal Church, would believe that somehow the centerpiece of our understanding of the Christian life is faith. And I believe, as a Catholic Christian, which is also part of our tradition as Episcopalians, that faith may not be understood apart from hope and charity. It cannot be done. And it is the way you put into your hands your faith. So more on that another time. Job is uh, a piece of wisdom literature in the Hebrew Bible. It is written in very elegant Hebrew. And as I mentioned to you when I started to talk about Job, there are more Hebrew words in the book of Job 
uh, occurring there that occur nowhere else in the Hebrew Bible. So it provides uh, people interested in the original text with a lot of interesting things to do if you're that kind of pour over things person, right? But also it's a book that is written in a very elegant style and one obviously that was compelling to the people who believed it should be included in the list of canonical books or the sacred literature that we all hold, the, the First Testament and the Second Testament, which we call the New Testament, uh, the Christian scriptures. So today, we've had Job, we've skipped around in Job. We started with the, with the cruel joke that God played with the Satan. And I mentioned to you that the Satan means the advocate in the original language, not the devil, as we personify it in, 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 uh, subsequently to that. And he makes a, a, a sort of a, he and God uh, come up with a cruel joke to afflict Job. So the first question that we ask uh, is, is God responsible for all the bad things that happen to us and the suffering? And would God, in fact, inflict suffering on somebody who is innocent? That's one question. Is he going to answer that one? <laughs> no. But it's one of the questions in the book of Job. So we fast forwarded the next week to Job uh, be, after having been uh, visited by all of his friends who gave, the, gave him rather conventional advice about what he should do. And in the, in the context, the original context, they gave him advice about what he should do as a pious Jew in terms of how they understood what it is you do in your relationship to God. Then we had a week where Job was um, crying out to God and wondering whether or not God was absent and had left him and was hidden. All these questions are questions human beings ask if they're trying to know God's will and purpose for them and whether or not God is present and how do we understand the nature of that presence. And then we skipped a week because we talked about St. Luke and we talked about health and we talked about healthy relationship and we talked about God's healing power, God's reconciling power and the fact that your personal history is part of the history of salvation, that you have a role to play in the saving purposes of God as you live your life in big ways and in small ways. Don't always think about that in heroic terms. Think about it in the ordinary and the commonplace and how you practice um, that sanctifying process as you live each day. And so this week, Job, we have the Hollywood ending, some biblical scholars call it, who don't like it for some reason. Job is restored. God restores Job complete, twice over. And he has a huge amount of flocks and herds and camels and everything, and he has these beautiful Job's daughters. I guess that's where the Masons get, right? Job's daughter, nothing. There it is. Just so you know, I can't, uh, Jemima, some of the names, the last name, which is a, a, a double-barreled name, in Hebrew it means horn of antimony. Why would it be that? Well, it's makeup. 
on their eyes, you know, now no tracemate then. Even then, though, there were, you know, people that were selling uh, products that represented Paul Mitchell products but weren't really Paul Mitchell products. <laughs> I don't know what the biblical answer to that is, but we'll have to talk about it another time. But horn of antimony was what you put on your eyes to make you look good, at least Bal Horoch, she did, and I guess uh, it produced results. It was, wor it was working for her. <laughs> but it's a big story, and what, Job lives 140 years? My Old Testament professor, Joseph Hunt, said, well, you can believe that if you want to. You heard me say that before. <laughs> that was one of the times, you can believe that if you want to. Of course, Melchizedek, who we read about in Hebrews today, he lived to be 900 and something, right? <laughs> Go figure. But there it is. The point of all this is that Job is now restored, and here, is the, here are the questions that you and I need to think about and maybe come up with uh, some working way we move through this. Job understands now that God's purposes are greater than his understanding. It raises the question for Christian people and certainly for Jews, what do we mean when we speak of God's omnipotence and omniscience? There's a lot of people, most of us have a kind of functional theology, you know, the kind of uh, now I lay me down to sleep kind of stuff we do, simple, which is both on the one hand compelling and on the other hand dangerous. So many of us believe that God is the great wish granter in the sky or that when we talk about God's presence, God is so presence he's almost, you know, helping you over here like this and if that doesn't happen, you wonder if he's there at all or you can believe in him because he's supposed to be intervening in human affairs, particularly when there's suffering and difficulty and it is baffling to us with regard to why that doesn't happen. So how we think about omnipotence and omniscience, I might just add as a footnote, many of us uh, have gotten in hot water throughout our lives and continue to do so because we wish that we were omnipotent, omniscient, and immortal, <coughs> right? So it does produce some difficulty. We come out of a, a, a faith tradition that was deeply influenced by the controversies of the 16th century in Europe. And as the result of that, God's sovereignty was an issue that was very important to people. That God was absolutely in control of everything. And that meant that no human agency in any way could thwart God's purposes and that we needed to knuckle under in that regard and understand that that was true. So omniscience and omnipotence uh, figured large in our particular outlook. I expect that was because there was a popular view abroad in 16th century Europe that somehow the church had inserted itself into the middle between the individual believer and God. And as a result of that, we were in the soup. And we needed now to get rid of this mediating factor or this obstruction and once again reunite ourselves one-to-one, -one, the believer to God. That, of course, is a caricature of what it is that, that, that people were thinking, but it's not that far off. And I think sometimes as the result of that, there were some mistakes made 
with regard to how we understand uh, the role of the community of faith as a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love in the world, and also making sense out of how we might more intelligently understand omnipotence and omniscience. Job repents in today's reading, but he doesn't repent for anything he said. It's very Jewish, I think. <laughs> he, didn't re he didn't repent for anything he said. What he repented of was that he didn't know the full story. But he's not sorry that he wrangled with God and he wrestled with God and that he still has questions. And neither should you be. Because as you live your life, you're going to have to contend with those things and trying to make sense out of why things are the way they are and what is the way we cooperate with the divine initiative. So that's what this story is about. But also it's about the fact that God does restore us and can restore us and that somehow when we cooperate with that, we feel the presence. My personal experience and my experience as a pastor is often, and it's very difficult to understand this, that God uh, is often most present. It's a paradox. Sometimes you don't feel this at all but is often most present when you're up against it the most. You know, it's white knuckle flying, that kind of thing. So I read the book of Job as something that's about that process of coming to know. You know, there's some contemporary theologians that say God is omnipotent and omniscient about everything in the past. God knows more than we do about everything. He knows the complete history of everybody. He knows the complete history of the world and the things that are hidden that you and I don't know. But the future is still open, as it is for all of us. That kind of theology is called process theology, right? And there is some, uh, there's some, uh, some credence ought to be given at least to the idea that um, when we come to know and understand more fully uh, God's purposes for us, it's through the processes that we're living through. So process has some, some role to play, doesn't it? I'm not so sure I believe uh, uh, in the process understanding of God. I do believe that God is omnipotent and omniscient, but I'm not at any, any position to speak about how that plays out in human affairs, particularly since you and I have free will and God also has a permissive will. And so those are things that are, that are uh, part of this mixture. So maybe it has something to do also with uh, powerlessness and the acceptance of that reality as we move forward in our lives. So just think about that a little bit, but always know that God's restoring purposes are present to us and that we can be the beneficiaries of that unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness that is the starting place for our faith and belief, our faith, hope, and charity. In the gospel, we have the last healing story in Mark as Jesus, uh, some preachers might say, is fixing to go to Jerusalem. And Bartimaeus is another example of somebody who recognizes Jesus when all the people who can see and are healthy don't. And who is Jesus recognized by 
as the Messiah or the Son of God in his gospel. Peter, the demons, and Bartimaeus, who's blind. So everybody else, Jesus is saying stuff and doing stuff, and they're all going... You know, not a clue, not a clue. And so in the course of this sort of thing, we hear today Bartimaeus shout out, you know, everybody, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, and he refers to one of the messianic titles of, uh, of Jesus, or a messianic title, which isn't Mark's favorite one. That's, by the way, an indication in biblical scholarship why you know this is an authentic story. Because Mark puts this in here, when Bartimaeus calls him son of David, and he would prefer to call him something else, uh, the son of man, the son of God, and Bartimaeus calls him the son of David, and so he figured, well, it's in the tradition, I can't not put it in there. So obviously he must have believed that, and as they were getting closer to Jerusalem, those are the titles they would be using in Jerusalem for the Messiah. It's interesting that Bartimaeus is named because most of Jesus' healing stories do not name him, name the person healed. And, and uh, the reason why Bartimaeus is named is because he became a convert, was part of the, probably part of the Markan church. So they knew him. He got up. What did he do? He got healed, and he followed Jesus. He left his cloak behind, and he followed him. You know? Not like the rich young man a couple of weeks ago, right, who went away sad after Jesus talked to him because he had many possessions. Right? Bartimaeus follows him after he gains his sight. Now, you can preach this on this gospel about Jesus healing Bartimaeus and about the messianic issues. I think this is a, a, a good theme to preach on is how you and I become more far-seeing and develop those traits in our own lives. Um, in the Roman Catholic Church, the patron saint of parish priests is St. John Vianney, the curé d'Ar. He's one of my favorite characters. He lived in the time of Napoleon in the 19th century, and he died in about the mid-19th century. He was uh, a priest in a little backwater town in Provence called Ars. He was a draft dodger during the Napoleonic Wars, and when uh, he finally got into seminary, he almost flunked out. He simply was a horrendous student. Uh, finally, he did get out, and the, the local bishop said, I'm going to ordain him, but I'm going to send him to ours. He can't do any harm in ours. <laughs> it's like Cologne, I guess, or somewhere like that. It would be hard to do a whole lot of harm in a place like that. And while he was there, he built that place into a center for spirituality. He was a world-renowned confessor and spiritual director. People from the great came to him. And it was said that uh, St. John Vianney had the, uh, he did something, by the way, that people who write about proper eating and dieting and everything else you shouldn't do, and that is eat standing up. <laughs> He always ate standing up, but since it was boiled potatoes and milk and a little barley water, I guess it didn't hurt him, right? He still was probably pretty slim. 
St. John Vianney had the power of discernment, which meant that he could talk with you and ask you stuff. For example, he'd be in the confessional and someone would make their confession, they'd be finished, and he would say, do you have anything else you want to say to me? Tell me. And they'd say, no, Father, that's all. And he would then tell them what they hadn't said, which put people off sometimes, right? <laughs> <laughs> One day, this is true, he was, uh, got out of the confessional. He used to sit sometimes as long as 16 hours a day, and the people were coming from everywhere. He'd come out, he came out, he went down the line. There was a woman from a neighboring village standing there waiting to make her confession, you know, like this. And he came up to her and he said, you know, you really ought to let your daughter marry that man who wants to marry her because he'll make her a good husband. <laughs> and she looked at him and said, <laughs> he, he was asked one time, uh, then you wouldn't say in an interview, but in a conversation he was asked by somebody who was writing down things about uh, St. John Vianney. Uh, he said, how did you get this power of discernment? And he said, I got this power of discernment, I believe, from struggling to learn Latin. I could not learn it. I had such a terrible time, I almost flunked out of seminary. And I had to make a main force effort to be able to do this. Now, that's a pretty oblique source for gaining a deep spiritual gift. And you know, there are more than one story about how that happens with people, how they learn these things. And it can then incorporate that into their uh, spiritual maturity. You know, Father Holmes, Urban Holmes, I've told you about his, the mystical way or the, the spiritual way, purgation, emptying, study, disciplined patience. You know, for the, for the curé d'ars, he was, he was disciplined he studied and he was patient. And somehow that gave him the ability to be far-seeing. So I think that what this gospel is about to some degree has something to do with how you cultivate those traits in your own life and that it is something you can do something about, that you can see more clearly. A lot of people just look and don't see. When I was fifth, uh, 13, my mother gave me The Complete Sherlock Holmes by Arthur Conan Doyle. And I started to read it. I read, read them, every one of them. And it was like, it was just a revelation to me when I was a kid. Because Holmes could tell so much stuff by observation. And he studied this deduction, this ability to do this. And some of you who've read Sherlock Holmes remember the famous one of where, where uh, uh, Holmes was handed by Dr. Watson a watch, a pocket watch, and he looked at the watch and he told uh, Watson all about the person who owned this watch. And Watson snatched it out of his hand and said, Holmes, how dare you? You have been looking into my private life this is my father's watch that he gave to me. And the things that you have said to me are secrets that I didn't think other people should know. Well, he trained himself, hadn't he? 
It's not just being born with intuition or insight or scoring that way on the Myers-Briggs, <laughs> right? It's practicing. And all of us need to do that when we think about being the best students we can be about the deep things of Christian faith and belief, but also all the things you need to be a good student of in order to function with some degree of excellence in your career, in your family life, in your relationships, in your hobbies, whatever it is that you're doing, that it's very important to do. So I think that every time I read this gospel, it's about uh, somebody who gained physical sight again, but already was fairly far-seeing and decided to go with Jesus on the way, to be a disciple, to be a student, to be a follower, and to learn in that way. So this week, uh, think about those questions about God. Remember, God loves, accepts, and forgives you unconditionally. That's the default position. And as the result of that, you have uh, an, a limitless, limitless bank account of grace to call on as you engage in these spiritual challenges. And think about uh, the Christian faith and life as being on, on the road, a process of coming to know more deeply and fully God's purpose for you. And always remember that you are part of God's plan for the cosmos. Amen. Amen. Cafe. Before you get the coffee, is there anyone who still has any of the prayers of the people?